I'm excited to continue this study called How to Study Your Bible. And we started last week by looking at an acrostic that will help us as we open up the Bible to study it. It's the acrostic SOAP, S-O-A-P, Scripture, Observation, Application, Prayer. And today we're talking about observation. Whenever we come to the Bible, learning to look at what we're reading and what we're studying. Learning how to slow down and let the Bible speak to us. Over Christmas, I got a Christmas gift that was unusual. It was a Christmas gift for my wife. It was one of the uh, stocking stuffers uh, that she always loves to give all the family. And she was working for Lego at the time, and she gave me a Star Wars Darth Vader Lego set. I have not received a Lego set since I was a kid. And, and I've not put together a Lego set by myself since I was a kid. Now, I've helped our children uh, put together some Legos, but she gave me a Lego gift. And so during one of the days that we were on break, I thought, you know, that'd be just some good therapy just to sit down and put together my Darth Vader. And so what I did is I opened up this box and I dumped out all the pieces. I had a couple of bags with all the pieces together and some other paraphernalia. I opened it up, laid it out on our breakfast room table. It looked like a million pieces. And then I thought to myself, do I really want to do this? I mean, first of all, I'm a grown man. Do I really want to do this? And then second of all, that's a lot of pieces. And then it was like I heard a voice saying, the force is strong with this one. And so I knew that I had it in me to do it. And so I did. I, I laid out those pieces and I started putting them in, a, in an organized pattern, the pieces that went together by color or shape. And, and then I got out the instruction manual and looked at it. And then I looked at the front of the box to see what the finished product ought to look like. I wanted to get the big picture. And in just about an hour, I guess, I put together my Darth Vader. We now proudly have it displayed on our breakfast room table. If you ever come over, I'll show you my Darth Vader. And no, Donna did not have to help me. I want to make that clear. Not once did I have to ask for my wife's help. Didn't have to call a plumber or anything. I was able to do this all by myself. That was a joke, just in case you were wondering. And you know, I think sometimes studying the Bible is a lot like putting together Legos. Bob, can I, would you agree with that? It's a lot like putting together Lego pieces. Sometimes we, we look at the Bible and it seems like it's just a lot of disjointed pieces. But what we discover is there's a pattern here. And if we'll take the time to lay out the pieces of what we're looking at on the pages of Scripture, and we'll start organizing what we're finding there, and we'll remember the big picture, we'll be better able to put together the message that God has for us in the Scriptures. And so what I thought we would do today is take a look at how to observe Scripture so that we look at the pieces, but so that we also can put those pieces together and understand what this Scripture or this passage or this book of the Bible means. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, because observation is an absolutely vital part of studying the Scriptures. If you do not take the time to study and observe what you're reading on the pages of Scripture, then the Bible is going to seem confusing to you. You're just going to open it up and put your finger and read a verse, and you're going to say, I don't get it. Well, no wonder you don't get it. Or you're going to look at the Bible, and it's going to seem contradictory to you. Or you're going to look at the Bible, and if you don't study it and observe what you're seeing, it will seem disjointed from what you've already read in other places in the Scriptures. And so often I find people treating the Bible like a box of fortune cookies. They want to just flip open the Bible and point to a verse and name it and claim it. Grab it and, and, and gab it and say, that's my verse for today. But often we're taking the scripture out of context. 
And we're twisting the scripture. And we're making it say something that it was never meant to say. In fact, if you don't take time to observe what you're reading and what you're studying in the scripture, you are more susceptible to error in your beliefs. Many of the cults in America today take advantage of the fact that many church-going Christians do not really study their Bible. And so they use bits and pieces and twists and parts to manipulate the Bible to say what they want it to say. And because you haven't studied the Scripture in context, you can be misled. You're vulnerable to false teachers and false beliefs. But really, the main reason that you ought to study the Scripture is because it's in the Scriptures that we get to know God in a more intimate way. We get to know His heart We get to know his purpose in this world. We get to know his desires for our lives. And so the goal of Bible study is not just simply to give you more head knowledge or to give you more facts. The goal of Bible study is that the more you know the word of God, the more you can know the God of the word and have a personal relationship with him. So we've given you this acrostic that's not original to our church. Many of you have used it before, S-O-A-P, Scripture observation, application, and prayer. If you missed last week's message on Scripture, go to fcbc.life and you can listen to it there. You can also find the notes of that message at the same place. And today's notes are in your bulletin. I'm going to put them on the screens. But they're also available at fcbc.life. In fact, if you're using our, our web app, you can put your own notes and then email them to yourself after the service today so that you can save them. But today we're going to move on to that letter O in our acrostic, observation. And we're going to discover the importance of seeing what we can learn just by slowing down and reading the Scripture in context. And don't underestimate this powerful tool of observation. It was none other than Yogi Berra, that great New York Yankees catcher, Hall of Fame inductee who said... You can observe a lot just by looking. And I think he's right. You can observe a lot just by looking. And observation makes you slow down and handle the text of Scripture in a meaningful and precise way. And what I'm going to talk to you about today, for some of you, may seem elementary. You may say, Pastor, I got up early this morning. I lost an hour of sleep for this. I've already heard, I know this. I do this all the time. Wonderful. But are you helping somebody else who's not as far along in their faith journey as you are to handle the scriptures in a systematic way. Maybe you need to come alongside another person and help them discover how to study the Bible. And what I'm going to be talking about today is not a sermon. I'm not preaching a sermon to you today. What I'm talking to you about today is what I share with people when I do one-on-one discipling. When new believers come into our church, I will talk to those guys and say, listen, do you need somebody to come alongside you? I want to help you. Learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I want to help you know how to pray. I want to help you know how to study the Bible. And so some of the things I talk to them about over coffee or over lunch is what I'm going to share with you today. So take a look at the Apostle Paul's instructions in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, where he he talked to Timothy about the importance of studying the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, Paul wrote, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, 
a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Can I ask you a question? Is it the ambition of your life that you want God to look at you both now and in the next life and say, well done? You have nothing to be ashamed of. You're living like I want you to live. Anybody here want that in, from God? Hey, I, want, I want God to be pleased. I want God to approve of my life. Not that I have to work to get God to forgive me of my sin and to save me. No, no, no. We're saved by grace through faith, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We're saved by God's grace, His unmerited love for us. We don't deserve it, but as a gift, God gives His love to us. And we're forgiven of our sin when we put our faith in Jesus who died for us on the cross and who rose from the dead. But Paul would also say, you weren't saved by good works, but you're saved for good works. That you're saved to live a life that is pleasing to God. And Paul says to Timothy, you need to work hard. You need to study. You need to be diligent. You need to put some effort into one who is approved by God. Don't work for the applause or the approval of people. Look for the approval of God. A worker who stands before his master, having done what the master said in a good way, not ashamed, not holding his head down, not being bashful or timid, but one who can stand in confidence saying, Master, I've done what you've asked me to do to the best of my ability. And how can that be possible? How can you serve God in a way that he will approve and bless? By rightly handling the word of truth. He's talking about by rightly handling, by understanding it and by living it. That's how we are approved by God. God's not looking for a bunch of scholars who have head knowledge but who don't live out what they believe. He wants people to understand the Bible and to then live out those principles of God that they're learning from the Bible. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you ought to make it your life's ambition to rightly understand and apply the word of truth to your life. Now, Paul was a tent maker by trade, even though he was a missionary. He didn't receive a salary from the churches that he founded. He didn't want anyone to say, you're only in it for the money. He says, a pastor's got a right to be paid, but I'm not going to take it. I'm going to work my job as a tent maker. And whenever he says to Timothy, rightly handling the word of truth, it actually means cutting straight, cutting a straight line. Some people think maybe he was using this picture from his occupation, that when he's making tents, he had to cut that fabric straight. And whenever we open up the scriptures and we start studying it, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. And we need to cut it straight. We need to let the scriptures speak for themselves and not impose our will on scripture. And the reason you ought to study the Bible for yourself is because there are many preachers and there are many churches and there are many Christians who are changing the word of God to fit what they want it to say rather than submitting themselves to the word of God. And you've got to be on guard against that. And you need to know truth for yourself. So if you want to rightly handle the word of truth, there's a wrong question to ask as you start, and there's a right question. If you're taking notes, the wrong question to start with is, what does this text mean to me? That's typically what happens. We'll read something and then ask immediately, what does this mean to me? That's the wrong question to start with. The right question to start with is, what does this text 
mean? There's going to be a time where we ask the question, what does this text I'm reading mean to me? What is God saying to me? But you don't start there. The first question is, what does this text mean? Because the Bible can never mean to you what it never meant to the original audience. So often we want the Bible to mean something to us, and it has nothing to do with what it was originally written for. We just twist it and take it out of context and make it our own life's verse, and we discover only later that's not really what that verse means. In fact, you know, the more I've studied the Bible, I've, I've lost a few good sermons over the years. Tom, I've lost a few good sermons. I've gone back and looked, thinking, that's not really what that verse meant. But it sounded good. wasn't heretical. But, you know, I talked about, you know, when two or three are gathered together, then Jesus says, I am in your midst. Yeah, that really is not talking about a prayer meeting. It's talking about when the church comes together to discipline a sinning church member. That God's there. So, yeah, that kind of took that verse out of context. I think we've all done that from time to time because often we read it. What does that mean to me? When we ought to slow down, observe the text, and ask the question, what does this text mean? I ask what the Bible means before I ask what it means to me. So let me give you seven steps to find out what a text means. The first step in observation is to pray. P-R-A-Y. The first step in observation is to pray. Now, I'm speaking primarily to Christians here uh, because for Christians, Bible study is not merely an academic exercise. We study the Bible because we want to know God better. We study the Bible because we want to know God's will for our lives. And we study the Bible because we want to live for God. And we come to Him totally dependent upon His power to help us understand the scriptures rightly and to apply them rightly to our lives. Now, yes, Jesus taught us that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Absolutely. But we must also remember that we are utterly dependent upon God to help us understand his word. The good thing about God is he's given us his word and he wants to help you in interpret and understand his word. I have a friend named Jeff Shattuck. In fact, some of you know Jeff uh, from London, England. He wrote a great book called Jesus and the Racing Rat. And I read his book before I knew him. And then he and I became friends. In fact, right now he's trying to get me to come see him uh, in England. And one of the things that I loved about getting to know Jeff is when I was reading his book and there were some things I didn't understand, you know what I could do? I could call up the author and say, I don't get this. Tell me what you mean when you say this. And I could talk to the author, and he would help me understand what he wrote. And dear friend, God wrote the word through inspired men over 1,500 years, but you've got the author on your side who through his personal presence in your life called the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, he is there to help you understand God's word. Paul, uh, Jesus, I should say, prayed this in John 16, verses 13 through 15. He said to his disciples, When the Spirit of truth comes, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine 
Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus said to his disciples, there's coming a day I'm not going to be with you. I'm going to die, be buried. I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm eventually going to physically go back to heaven, be seated at the right hand of my heavenly Father. But I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Father is going to send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And he's going to guide you into all the truth. He's going to remind you of what I did. He's going to remind you of what I said. He's going to remind you of what you need to stake your life on. Have you ever wondered how we got the New Testament? We got the New Testament because the Holy Spirit of God inspired those eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry to give us a record of his life and his ministry. This is the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus. But the same Holy Spirit who helped them will now help you understand what God has revealed. So begin your Bible study with prayer. And we're going to talk more about this on March 24th as we finish out SOAP and the P stands for prayer. So I'm going to talk to you more about the importance of prayer. But suffice it to say, I encourage you to pray before you study the Bible, while you study the Bible, and after you study the Bible. Saturate your Bible study in prayer, talking to God. That's why sometimes whenever I read the scriptures, I will say, and I'm reading them publicly with you, I will say, let's pray and we'll ask God to illuminate our hearts. Or sometimes I'll just make a statement, may God now bless the reading of his holy word. You know what I'm doing? I'm I'm just giving you a sentence prayer where I'm saying, God, we need you to bless us. We've read your word. We need you to help us understand your word. So the first step in observation is to pray. The second step Choose a translation that is accurate and easy. The the fill-in-the-blank is easy to read. Choose a translation that is easy to read. People often ask me which translation of the Bible they should use. You go to the Christian bookstore, and there's so many different versions or translations. It can become overwhelming. Uh, My first answer is choose the Bible translation that you're actually going to read. That's the best kind right there. Uh, you know, in the end, it really doesn't matter a whole lot. Choose one that you're actually going to use. What good is one if you don't ever use it? But I do think it's helpful to tell you that Bible translations fall between two extremes on a spectrum. If at the end of this spectrum, you've got an English translation, and on this end, you've got an English paraphrase, what does that mean? It means a translation takes the original language of the Bible, Hebrew and some Aramaic for the Old Testament, and Greek, and a little Aramaic for the New Testament, and translates that from the original Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic into English. And a literal translation is going to try to keep it almost word for word, as close as they can. And then on the other end, you've got a paraphrase. They're not so much worried in a paraphrase about a word-for-word translation from Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. They're more concerned with a thought-for-thought Okay, we've read the original. Here's the thought that they were communicating to the original audience. Let's put it in a modern context with modern language, giving more thought for thought. If you think about a paraphrase, you're thinking about Bibles such as the Message Bible or the Living Bible. Uh, There's one that's called the New Living Translation that is between a translation and a paraphrase. I really enjoy reading the New Living Translation as my devotional study. But I'm going to tell you, whenever it comes to studying the Bible, I would tell you to go towards a translation in your study 
and use more of a paraphrase in your devotional. You want to know what God said to his people, so you need a good translation. I personally use the English Standard Version. Very good, very modern English Standard Version. Um, others of you use the NIV. That's a good one. Some of you use the New American Standard Bible. That's a good one. Some of you use the Holman Christian Standard Bible. That is a good one. Uh, so choose more of a translation for your Bible study. And choose one that's a little easier for you to read. Now, I love the King James Version. I cut my teeth on the King James Version. Uh, but sometimes for modern English hearers and readers, it's not as easy to say and read and to understand. But uh, in the end, find one that you're actually going to read and study it. The third step in observation is to learn how to locate Bible books. Learn how to locate Bible books. I remember when I was a kid and I just received Jesus as my Savior. I'm 12 years old and my pastor says today uh, I'm going to be preaching from the book of Job. And I had no clue where that was, didn't know how to find it, and I watched other people, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to sit this one out. (laughs) You know, I don't know where that's at, uh, the book of Job. And and then I thought, oh, I remember I was calling that Job. I thought it was the book of Job. That's the book of Job. It's a person. I didn't know that. And you know what? Why would I be expected to know that? I've never read the Bible, never had a Bible. So learn how to locate Bible books. And what you'll discover is the Bible is not really just one book. The Bible is actually 66 books put together into one compendium. you got 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. And to give you a broad overview, the Old Testament is about a people. The New Testament is about a person. The Old Testament is about the people of Israel, God's chosen people through whom he promised the Messiah. The New Testament is about the person of the Lord Jesus who is the Messiah. The Old Testament prophesied and predicted that coming Messiah who will save his people from their sins. The New Testament presents that Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you need to understand the Bible is divided into two divisions, Old Testament, New Testament. But don't worry if you have trouble finding the books. There's a very simple tool given to you in the front of every Bible. It's called the table of contents. Do not be ashamed to use the table of contents. The table of contents will break the Bible up into the two major divisions, Old Testament, New Testament. It'll then list the Bibles or the books in that Testament in the order in which they appear. Genesis all the way through to Malachi. Matthew all the way through to the book of Revelation. So use it. Don't be ashamed if you have to use it. Or if you're using the Bible app, scroll to the table of contents and find it that way. And the more you do it, the more you'll get used to where those books are. Step four in your observation is to understand Bible references. The books of the Bible were not originally written with chapter divisions or verses. The the, the original manuscripts don't have chapter one, verse one. The original manuscripts do not say John chapter 3, verse 16. Those were added hundreds of years later to help us locate places in the Scripture. And that's a good thing and it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing because often it makes people think they can just pluck that one verse out like a fortune cookie and claim it and just ignore everything else. But the best reason we have them is now it's just so much quicker to say, I want to talk to you about something Paul wrote. Let me tell you exactly where you can find it. And it just makes it easier for your Bible study. But um, 
If you look at a Bible reference and you see somebody holding up a placard that says John 3.16 at the Jaguar game, uh, you know, we take for granted that everybody knows what that is. But there are people who don't know what that means. Well, that just simply means this is a book of the Bible. It's the book called John or the Gospel of John. That three means that's the third chapter. That 16 after the colon means that's the 16th verse. First John 3.16, that just means this is the first of three letters we have in the Bible that John wrote. Because he not only wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote three letters. First John, Second John, Third John. Oh, by the way, to really confuse you, he also wrote the book of Revelation at the end. And so he wrote a lot of stuff. And so that just helps you understand, oh, this is the first one of those letters that we have copies of. This is the third chapter, the 16th verse. So you need to understand that so that you can find your place in God's Word. Step five in observation is to start with a book that is easier to understand than others. Start with a book that is easier to understand than others. I'm not going to tell you not to read something. I'm just going to tell you if you're brand new to Bible study, or even if you're like me and been to seminary, you might have trouble reading the book of Lamentations. Just probably not where you want to start. You may want to start in the Gospel of John in the New Testament. Maybe just start there. You're learning about Jesus. It's a message about his earthly ministry and his death and his resurrection. Or the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament would be a good place to start your study. In fact, you could do both. Do a little study in the Gospel of John, then do a little study in the book of Proverbs. You know, there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. You could read a chapter a day and in a month have read the whole book of Proverbs. And so I would challenge you to start with something easier to understand. Don't get discouraged. Don't give up. Hang in there. And then the sixth step in observation is to remember that context is king. Context is king. Context simply means that which goes with something. The context means that which surrounds something. In her book, How to Study Your Bible, Kay Arthur wrote, Context always rules in interpretation. The word context means that which goes with the text. In general, then, context is the environment in which something dwells, the setting in which something exists or occurs. I love her book, by the way, How to Study Your Bible by Kay Arthur. I would recommend that to you if you want to learn more. But if you take a verse out of context, you're going to get a wrong meaning. Let me give you an example. Amos chapter 4, verse 4. Go to Bethel and sin. I've been told that Bethel seminary students love that verse. <laughs> Go to Bethel and sin. Or Psalm 14, verse 1. The f- there is no God. And all the atheists say, I told you. There's no God. Even the Bible says there's no God. But when you read the context, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's a foolish thing to believe, that all of this just happened. No, that's a foolish thing to say. Or you'll hear people take 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 out of context. Money is the root of all evil. Have you ever heard that one? It's not what it says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is amoral. It has no morals. It it just does whatever you tell it to do. But often people take verses out of context and they make it say something it was never meant to say. You can do that with a word or a sentence or a passage. For example, what about the word trunk? 
T-R-U-N-K. What does that mean? You say, well, I need to know the context. Exactly. Is this the trunk of a car? Is this the trunk of a tree? Is this a compartment in which I carry my clothing or ship things? What am I talking about here? Well, what if you read this paragraph? I remember seeing this huge trunk appear before the window of our car. We had been informed to always line up our car in the same direction in which the elephant was going in case he charged at our vehicle. As we saw this trunk swinging back and forth and the elephant's face coming closer, we knew it was time to leave. Now you know what the word trunk means in that context. It's not a tree. It's not the trunk of a car. It is the trunk of an elephant. And you wouldn't know that if you just see the word trunk. And you can't say, well, that's what it means to you. But to me, this means... No, 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 no. You have no say over what this means. This means what the original author said it meant. Well, this is a spiritual metaphor of how life swings back and forth. No, it doesn't. It just means it's a trunk of an elephant. But so often people do that with the Bible. The Bible clearly states what it means. Plain English in our case. And then we say, oh, well, it means that to you, but to me. And then we turn it into something it never meant to anybody. You can't do that with God's Word. You can't do that with anything else. I promise you, when I was taking remedial algebra, I'm just going to be honest. I'm just going to lay it all out there. I was taking remedial algebra. My teacher didn't care if I said, well, this is what X means to me. Well, sorry. In that equation, that's not what it means. You know, she didn't care what I wanted it to mean. She only cared about the truth. And the same is true when we study the Scripture. You've got to read it in context. The Bible can never mean to you what it never meant to somebody else in the original audience. You have to be careful. Now, we can apply it to our lives in different ways, but there's only one meaning to Scripture. One meaning. Many applications, but just one meaning to Scripture. In fact, really, there are four types of context you ought to keep your eye on as you're reading the Scriptures. We don't have time to discuss them, so I'll just highlight them for you. Uh, you know, in fact, I think I put them in your notes for today. Did I put them in there? Good. So I listed some of those contexts you ought to keep in mind. For example, literary context. Whenever you're reading a Scripture, slow down and say, what kind of literature is this? Because the Bible's filled with all kinds of literature. Is this historical literature? Is this biographical? Is this a gospel about the life of Jesus? Is this a narrative? It's a story. Is this the law of Moses? Is this poetic like the Psalms? Is this prophetic like Ezekiel or Daniel or the book of Revelation? Is this proverbial or wisdom literature like the book of Proverbs? You can't take a proverb and make it a promise. A proverb is not a promise. A proverb is a statement of how life generally works. Here's the wise way to live. Here's the foolish way to live. This is generally how it works. For example, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And that verse has been used to stab the heart of many a parent of a prodigal child, saying, you must have done something wrong, Dad. You must have done something wrong, Mom. Because if you'd have trained them up in the way they should go, they won't depart from it. Proverbs are not a promise. They're just a general statement of how life generally works, and it's generally true. You start young. You start early. You set them on the right path. 
But I know that's not a promise because I know a heavenly father who's perfect and every single one of his kids except one went astray. Don't get me started on that. But so often people want to take something out of context. An epistle, that's not the wife of an apostle. When, when you see epistle, that just means a letter. So when Paul says, I'm writing to the Christians in Rome, he wrote a letter to Christians in Rome, and they circulated that letter among their Christian community churches that met in people's homes. When he wrote a letter to Timothy or he wrote a letter to the Galatians, it's an epistle. The apocalypse, that means the revelation. Apocalypsis, Greek, means the unveiling. And the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It unveils the end times. And it's not, by the way, the book of Revelations, plural, with an S at the end. It's the book of Revelation, one revelation. It's all about Jesus. That's just free. I'm not going to charge you for that. Or, or is, this, is this a combination of, of these things that I'm reading? You also need to understand the historical setting. You need to understand the context of grammar. What is this word? What does this word mean? How does this author use this word in other places? How is this word used in other scripture? You need to learn how the sentence structure is. Is this a noun? Is this a verb? Is this a, a, an adjective? And then biblical synthesis means you compare scripture with scripture. So often people get off on some tangent because they read one verse. But they haven't read what the whole Bible says about that topic. God has revealed his truth progressively from Genesis to Revelation. And you need to look and compare Scripture with Scripture because Scripture is its best interpreter. And so you need to learn how to read the Bible uh, with that attitude. And then finally, last but not least, ask questions. Number seven in observation, ask questions whenever you're reading the Bible. Now, before you ask questions of your pastor, just ask questions of the text that you're reading. Because often you'll discover the answers for yourself. Now, God gave pastors and teachers to help you study the Bible. You ought to be in a life group. All the life group leaders said amen. Because that's where we study the Bible together. And we can ask questions and we can wrestle with the text. But there's a lot you can learn on your own if you just slow down and start asking some questions. When I was in high school, uh, I was not an athlete. Does that shock anyone in this room? Um, but I, I was into uh, a drama, uh, choir, show choir, but, but uh, I was in the Distributive Education Club of America. That was whew, so exciting. Um, you know. uh, and then I was also in the journalism department. And one of the classes we took in journalism in high school was to learn how to ask five W's and an H. And then I was sent out to a local radio station where I had to interview a disc jockey. And for all of you millennials, this is not someone who rides a disc. This was, they had records back then. They're coming back now. People are actually buying record players again. But I had to go to that local radio station and talk about what he did and how the station functioned. And my journalism teacher said, ask who, what, when, where, why, how. Get as much of that as you can. Come back and write your story. Write your article for the newspaper. And you know, that's good advice when you study the Bible. Ask those five questions. Who, what, when, where, why, how. In fact, why don't we practice it this morning? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John, the apostle who's been with Jesus, who was an eyewitness of Jesus, is now finishing his gospel about the life of Jesus. 
And as he's getting ready to close out his book, he tells you at the end why he wrote this book. Listen to John 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now let's just slow down and look at those two verses again. If you started with the question who, perhaps you would ask who is this verse talking about? Well, it says, now Jesus did many other signs. So we know this verse is talking about Jesus. Now you may ask, well, who else is mentioned? Well, the disciples are mentioned. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. And then you may just keep asking, who? well, who are the disciples? Who were these people? How did they become disciples? So this verse is about Jesus. And then if you move on to the next question, what? Maybe you would ask, what did Jesus do? Well, it says Jesus did many other signs that are not written in John's book. Well, okay, well, I know what Jesus did. He did many other signs. But what does John mean when he uses the word signs? Well, you go back into the Gospel of John and you discover every time Jesus performs a miracle, John's calling it a sign. And a sign points to something greater. And so Jesus is performing miracles, and many of those aren't written down in the Gospel of John. So he's telling us that. But the ones that are written in John were written for a reason. And we know as we studied the book of John, if you go back and start finding those miracles, you'll find at least seven of them. The first miracle of Jesus, remember what it was? Baptists don't like to talk about it, but he turned water into wine. Remember that one? He turned water into wine. He, he healed a paralyzed man. Jesus himself walked on water. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Typically, when I think about the Gospel of John, I think about seven signs plus one Those seven miracles he performed, plus his own resurrection from the dead, which is the sign, the miracle of all miracles. When? When did Jesus do these miracles? Well, according to what John wrote, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. So this is before his death on the cross. This is before his resurrection. This is during that three and a half years of his earthly ministry. Jesus is performing miracles. Where? Where did Jesus perform these miracles? Well, it says he performed these signs in the presence of the disciples. In fact, we had this conversation in our home last night, me and Donna and Casey and Caleb, and we were talking about how that the Christian faith is not just based on blind faith. The Christian faith is based on eyewitness testimony of people who lived with Jesus, who listened to Jesus, who watched Jesus, who did not believe he would rise from the dead after he died, but he did rise from the dead and appear to them alive, and they gave their lives. Many of them literally gave up their lives for the testimony that they had seen Jesus dead, buried, and now physically resurrected from the dead. And that miracle of all miracles proved to them beyond a shadow of a doubt he is the Son of God. And they put their faith in him. And they lived and they died for him. 
He didn't do miracles in a corner somewhere. He didn't do miracles in the dark. He did it in front of his own disciples so that they would know, I am who I say I am. The Old Testament said that the Messiah would come and perform mighty works of God, and I have done that. And now you know. And so I want you all to hear your pastor. Your faith is not on whether or not you can fully understand some obscure verse in the Old Testament and that your faith is shaken because you're not sure if Genesis talks about six literal days or, or if those aren't literal days. Your faith is based on the fact that Jesus died was buried and rose from the dead, and he is the Son of God. And there were eyewitnesses who gave us their testimony. And well, can we trust those eyewitnesses? We do it every day in a court of law. Eyewitness testimony is some of the greatest evidence to the veracity of an event. And Jesus did these miracles in the presence of the disciples. And why did Jesus do them and why did John record them? John tells us in verse 31, the reason I included these out of all the miracles that Jesus performed was so that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John says, I'm just going to lay it out. I didn't just tell about the life of Jesus to tell a good story. I told you the truth so that you can have confidence that your faith in Jesus is well-placed. He's writing to a group of people, most of them, who never met Jesus, never saw Jesus, never lived with Jesus, didn't see him alive. But they're hearing firsthand from someone who did. Now you know why John would say, in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we didn't believe in Him like we should have. After all those miracles he performed, we still didn't believe him. And when he died, we thought that it was over. We were scared they're going to kill us next. And we weren't waiting for the resurrection. We were waiting for our own execution. And then suddenly Jesus showed up, alive and victorious, and it all started making sense. And I've written this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And maybe that would lead you to the last question, how? How can I know that I have eternal life? By doing good works, by being religious, by going to church, by putting money in the offering plate, by being better than those hypocrites down there at the local Fort Caroline Baptist? No. How can I know I have eternal life? By believing by trusting in the name of Jesus. I stake my life on the name, the character, the finished work of Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, as the old hymn says. Listen, you will not always find answers 
to all of those questions, who, what, when, where, why, and how. But if you will start asking them of the text, interrogate the text like a detective interrogates a witness, you will be amazed at how God speaks to you. I first ask what the Bible means before I ask what it means to me. So here's your homework. Here's your homework. I want you to choose a familiar passage of Scripture this week, maybe the 23rd Psalm, whatever it is. And I want you to work through these steps. Pray, choose a translation that's easy to read, locate that book in your Bible, understand the references, Start with that book that's easier to understand than others or that passage that's easier to understand than others. Remember, context is king. Don't take it out of its context. Don't ask, what does it mean to me? No, you're asking, what does it mean? And ask those five questions. Who, what, when, where, why, how. Answer as many as you can. Jot your notes down. Jot your thoughts down. Jot your observations down. Because once you've discovered what it means, then we can talk about what does it mean to me. That's what I want to preach about next Sunday. How do we apply God's Word to our lives? By the way, if you need a Bible, Version is a free Bible app for any phone or, or tablet. Y-O-U, Version, awesome. But there's nothing that can replace having a hard copy of God's Word in your own hand. To use it, to open it, to learn where the books are, to underline, to highlight, to jot notes in the margin. And so if you need a Bible and you can't afford one, go to fcbc.life, click on that first card where it says, Let's Connect. Give us your name, email address, and in the comment box, just say, I need a Bible. And I will personally get you a Bible so that you can study on your own. I'm also in the future going to make a little list called Recommended Resources available to you that will give you some more ideas of good study helps. But you know what you need? First and foremost, you need this. You need the Holy Spirit of God, and you need an open heart and mind to receive what God says to you. I first ask, what does it mean, before I ask what it means to me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this time.